Welcome, and thank you for joining us on our latest installment of Culture and Compliance Chronicles, a podcast series focused on the behavioral sciences approach to risk management. I'm Tina Yu, a litigation and enforcement associate at Ritz and Gray. On this episode, which is the first of a two-part discussion, I am joined by Julian Danobitia, executive coach and director of Down the Corridor. Julian, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Thanks, Tina. Hello, everybody. Yep. Uh, my name is Julian Danabitia. I uh, was a lawyer for a very long time. Uh, probably quite a few of my clients would say far too long. And uh, I've had the pleasure of being an executive coach for about the last 20 years, I guess. Um, and I am privileged enough to um, work with a lot of lawyers, a lot of people in the regulatory space, um, and a lot of people in business. So maybe whatever I've got to say uh, may be helpful. Let's find out. I'm sure you'll have a lot of very interesting insights for us. Um, so today the topic really is how do we communicate with each other in a way that's open um, and conducive really to getting our messages and concerns across. And Julian, you and I have had conversations about this and and I think what ultimately it boiled down to was really respect. Um, and, and on a topic of respect, uh, we wanted to delve further into how legal and compliance functions are often perceived in an organization uh, because we, we just think that perception really heavily impacts first respect towards the messages that these functions are trying to propose and trying to put forward. But on the other hand, that perception will also impact generally um, how employees are communicating with them on, on compliance and risk management issues. Mm. Have you ever watched Disney's magnificent film called Inside Out? Uh, yes, I have. That, that, that film is probably the best exposition of, I guess, pretty much everything that we're going to talk about uh, in this session because what that film really eloquently puts, I think, is something that I think in psychology and neuroscience is a pretty kind of um, reasonable proposition to make, which is that emotion drives all behavior. And of course, emotion absolutely helps to create perceptions. Um, and uh, I can remember from my own career walking into many, many rooms with many, many clients and many, many people on the other side over the years and watching people's eyes hit the ceiling as soon as I walk through the door because, lo and behold, the lawyers are here, or the regulatory people are here, or the, the Ministry of NOAA are here, or the Business Prevention Unit are here. And I guess one of the things that I learned as a result of the coaching process that I went through myself after leaving practice as a lawyer was that that response to me was driven in large part by my own behavior, but I was never really until I got into coaching myself able to see that. And it's only really, you know, because I've been extraordinarily lucky in my career and have been given the opportunity to work with some, some incredible people really, um, and work inside the auspices of a, a, a very large law firm that really, I guess, kind of created the first big coaching school for lawyers and it was there that I first got to see how really um, 
what it seems we're trying to do is to get people to do the right thing. But we're trying to get them to do it by telling them off. And we're trying to get them to do it by telling them what's wrong. And we're trying to get them to do it by creating legislative frameworks. Sometimes, not every time, of course, but that's certainly the perception that I come across most most often in, in business, that, you know, uh, the, the regulatory people are out to get us. They, they don't understand us. They don't, they don't, they don't see our view. Uh, and that's a shame, of course, because I know that that's not what regulatory people intend to create for, for, for the rest of the people in their business as an experience. And yet that's what happens. But much more fundamentally, the absence of any focus on the relationship itself between the regulatory part of the business and the rest of the business, which is, I've had the privilege of being able to support professionals in building those relationships over the course of my career. And, and things change when that happens, I think. Things change when that happens. When that focus shifts, things seem to change. Right, and I, I completely agree with that. And, and actually, I'd be really interested in exploring this um, from your perspective as a coach um, and, and how to help people come out of that shell, if you will, um, a little bit later in this podcast. Um, but but I want, do want to go back to your point about how there being this disconnect between, you know, the legal and regulatory functions um, when really ultimately the end, the end goal is really the same regardless of which function you're in. And, and it's really you just want this organization to be better, but you're coming about it from a very different perspective. Um, mm. I mean, in my own experience, um, like you mentioned, there is this general distrust of lawyers. Um, there's this general distrust of, distrust of compliance because they view them as call centers. And a lot of the times they view them as obstacles um, mm -hmm or sometimes even a check-the-box exercise that creates more administrative hassle for them um, when they mm. want something done. And, mm. and a lot of the times, like you mentioned, it is like the movie Inside Out. You have all these different um, emotions, opportunities, or goals you're trying to achieve at the same time, and that creates oftentimes a very disjointed result um, that, that really isn't beneficial ultimately for the organization and, and there needs to be some kind of bridge between these different perspectives. Um, mm. and, and I just find that uh, unfortunately lacking um, because of this mutual distrust almost. Um, like I said, I, I think oftentimes the business side, um, the sales teams, the marketing teams, they they just view, view the procedures and processes that the lawyers and the compliance professionals are putting in, you know, really ultimately as a protection, um, a safety net as an administrative burden um, and as an obstacle that they need to overcome ultimately. And then that kind of feeds back into this vicious circle where the legal and the compliance functions kind of look at the reaction, you know, of the business side and say, well, they're, they're just not being cooperative. They don't get what we're trying to do here um they're making our lives difficult as well and, and that resentment kind of just grows um within an organization so it just is it just seems so important to me that there needs to be these open lines of communications on what each department or each function is trying to do and how the other is actually supporting that instead of hindering it 
And I just don't mm. think that that is happening often enough. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, I, 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 I don't know if the training is vastly different in the U.S. from the from the training here in the U.K., but I am absolutely sure they've got, you know, what I got told about was rule one, which is that uh, you've got a duty to your client, you've got a duty to the court. I know that in my own case, my response was was to learn as much of the law as I could and, and be absolutely right in my assertions about everything and, and uh, uh, never take the foot off the gas and make absolutely sure that everybody knew that I was being a lawyer, so to speak. So my own, my own paradigm was, or my own sense of myself was, as a lawyer, that, you know, I deliver value by um, knowing lots of law and doing loads of hard work. And I, I, that's what I did. In fact, I got really good at doing that. At one stage, I had so many files in my room that I was able to block the door of my office so nobody would come in and disturb me while I was doing all this important work. And uh, mm -hmm. it was a huge mistake on my part. But again, mm -hmm. my, my emotions, if you like, created my perceptions of what I was supposed to be, my paradigm of what I was supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, committed to being it. Um, and the one thing that I never focused on was the relationship, um, the relationship with anybody, really, or, or, the, or, or to put it more bluntly or more clearly, I hope, the experience that I was creating for other people around me, right? Because I wasn't aware of the experience that my own emotions were creating for myself, right? As a result of that, of course, I got the results that I got, and I can distinctly remember when I went from private practice to in-house that it, it, that was really the start of my inquiry about how how this can be done differently, you know, and how and how particularly in-house lawyers and, and people who are in a regulatory function inside commercial organizations or, or you know, or large organizations of any type can get a different result. The, the irony is that, you know, I've, I've worked with a lot of in-house teams and the in-house legal function almost invariably is the only function that joins up all of the other functions in any organization. So they have, they already have this incredible network because because they get access to those parts of the business that maybe some others don't get to the same extent. So therefore, for an in-house legal team, I think the key is 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 maybe, and this is a very you know this is a huge generalisation because each team is different, each business is different, but it may be around shifting shifting the focus towards towards the relationship and away from the file that's on the desk. If you're able to build a relationship with with another part of the business in a way that you haven't previously, what you may then get is a very different result. If I tell myself that they're wrong and they're bad, and I tell myself that that you know my job is to get them while they're while they're doing the bad thing that they're doing, they probably will be, right? That's probably what I'll discover. And I'm thinking about, I don't know, the Stanford prison experiment, you know, where we experienced a, a situation where you got two very nice, decent groups of students who were asked to play, you know, different roles, prison guard, prisoner, and who within a matter of hours were turning up the dials on the on the electric shock machine so high that it, everybody thought that, you know, they were going to kill each other. And it, it only took a few hours. So what I'm saying is that I think that the role of, you know, the in-house legal function or the in-house regulatory function is one factor. But I think that that, that, that function sits within a wider culture inside any organization. I think that regulatory people can be an, an enormous driver of change inside those organizations, as, as can lawyers. I, I really like the perspective that 
um, you know, the legal compliance function, they actually do see a very big slice of what's going on within the company. And if there is a way to kind of bridge that communication channel, then they could actually play a very, very important role. Um, and, and that's not just limited to the very dry legal issues. Um, they could really become a core, if you will, of maintaining the company's cultures, uh, maintaining the company's values, um, because they have such a broad insight into the going-ons. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I do think, like you mentioned, it, it is a shame when these roles become pigeonholed into what many perceive as a traditional legal compliance regulatory role. Um, I, I really like that visual where you said you're kind of in your office and you had just files stacked high that was blocking mm -hmm. your way out the door. Um, I, I think that image portrays, I think, very accurately how how some of the more traditional legal roles have been been um, viewed. Um, and, and I think we we do need to, you know, physically take that first step and physically remove those files and binders and open that door and start talking to people when you're within an organization. Um, I have spoken to various in-house counsel and it's interesting when they tell me the biggest difference between their roles within a law firm and within the organization is they they kind of have been forced to become people people you know um <laughs> <laughs> it's translating why is this a big issue why is this um why does this have potential repercussions on the company and what you do and taking that very foreign and cold legalese and making it into something that's acceptable that's understandable and something that can be easily embraced by the rest of the organization and, and mm. i think that really is um one of the key roles about being a lawyer that like you said um isn't always communicated in law school <laughs> i know that it wasn't just well i mean I, don't, I just don't think it was a conversation uh, uh, an audible level was taking place inside the law having a coaching session this morning with a general counsel of a, of a big organization what she is general counsel inside a commercial organization and many of her peers want a lot is for private practice lawyers to take this relationship based focus on too because they have the same issues as as well uh, you know, it's very, very hard for a, for a GC to go and instruct a, a law firm uh, and say, we need to be in Italy next Tuesday and please get me something that is appropriate or fit for purpose that I can present to my board around the regulatory issues. So it needs to be succinct and clear and, and, and receive 50 pages of war and peace with an invoice attached to it. So that's not, mm -hmm. that's not really focusing on the relationship. That private practice lawyer at that point is not really focusing on the experience that he is creating for that general counsel who's try to be clear about what she needs in order to help her business move more forward from a regulatory perspective. So my sense is maybe there's a role for private practice lawyers and in-house lawyers okay. and regulatory people to play in concert uh, by all helping each other to, you know, to, to, to shift this focus. You know, for shareholders, uh, this is probably quite relevant. You know, I don't think that there are many shareholders who are thrilled at the idea of risking their return on capital employed by, by, by putting their cash into an organization that's all foul of the regulatory requirements that they're subject to. Mm -hmm. 
so so I think you know maybe shareholders as well have have some you know I don't know some part to play when they are faced with the choice to do the right thing rather than not do the right thing you know mm -hmm. oh, what's what's your sense you know I can remember being in practice of being of being faced with questions about whether I should or shouldn't do a thing uh, and I think that that's the crucial moment that's maybe the moment that that from a regulatory perspective, I don't know, we should be focusing on and how to how to build the capacity of that person faced in that moment with that challenge to do the right thing rather than not. And, and Julian, I, I completely agree with what you said. And, and honestly, I'm a firm believer that most people want to do the right thing. But ultimately, what they believe to be the right thing when that moment comes, it's going to be influenced by many, many different factors. And I think one of the most important things that the legal role, the compliance role, the other regulatory roles, what they, sh the, the most important thing that they can do is to arm that individual with the right tools to make what in hindsight is ultimately going to be the right decision. And, and we've discussed this in other podcasts where it's so easy for somebody who's in an isolated environment to kind of go down the slippery slope of non-compliance. And it's really because they, they just didn't have the tools. They didn't have the outreach. They didn't have the resources to support them in, in making what we now would see as the right decision versus the wrong decision. So I completely agree with your point that it, it does ultimately boil down to that point when we're looking at whether you do have a good compliance program or not. Um, the ultimate question is, are you doing enough? Are you providing these resources? Are you creating the environment that is going to foster these decision-making um, processes and decision-making mm -hmm. capabilities in the members of your organization when they're at this point? What, what's working? the actions that, that you see making a difference inside organizations from a regulatory perspective? Ultimately, what I found to be most useful is having that open environment and having those open lines of communication. Um, what's really struck me just talking to different people and, and hearing from their experiences is people don't really think about you know, bad stuff happening to them until they're faced with it. And most people that I've spoken to like to think of themselves as good people. And that in itself is kind of a bias because um, I, it kind of makes it easier for you to justify or find you know, a legitimate or so-called legitimate reason for doing something that otherwise might you might not have done. So... What I find most difficult for people is when they don't have somebody to talk to, because a lot of the times when you're kind of stuck in your little hole and you're in the silo and you're doing your own thing, you don't have somebody to bounce ideas off of. I think sometimes you will make the, a very different decision if you could only hear yourself speak to another person about it, because what is in your head and once it is communicated, um, that will give you a different perspective. And if you're alone and you don't have anybody to talk to about it, then I think that really is a very big contributing factor to making the so-called wrong decisions. Um, yeah. 
Amazing. That's the, <laughs> you just reminded me why we called our company company down the corridor because of course was because there was somebody there was somebody down the corridor for me when I was a trainee who I could bounce mm. ideas off of and not make the you know not make the silly mistakes. So that's really interesting. I, I just find it fascinating because I have been in training sessions. The most effective training sessions that I've had are when people are talking about the issues they encountered, and and you can tell people have been thinking about it. People have been mulling over it, but there never was really a platform for them to discuss it. And people enjoy these discussions because when they hear about examples, when they really think about these examples and when they're trying to apply themselves to the examples, you could see the wheels going off in their heads and and it's Mm. kind of a training process in decision-making as well because Mm. that's when they really apply themselves and they are trying to apply what we're Mm. telling them to do or not to do. And that's when I think it it really begins to make a difference because, you know, you could, you could write things in black and white and all, all caps and huge fonts and people are still not going to think about applying them. So I I do find it has to be an organic process for it to be the most effective. Mm. Um, And having those conversations is, really the beginning yeah. of that. That's, that's so interesting because it takes me right back to, you know, Richard Bowlby's secure attachment theory of, of what our outcomes look like. You know, those with a secure attachment, attachment relationship are likely mm-hmm. to have a better outcome than those that are not. And of course, um, Mary Ainsworth in her later research around the whole concept of the secure attachment relationship and what it does and how it changes us, how it changes the way we think and behave. Mm-hmm. was able to demonstrate very clearly that it actually you, that can happen anytime. You know, it can happen mm-hmm. early in life. It can happen at any other time. Uh, and it's so interesting to hear you articulate your experience of it, your day-to-day experience of it, as kind of fundamentally being around having somebody to talk to about it and, and you know, just bounce ideas off, as you say. Thank you very much, Julian. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to our Culture and Compliance Chronicles podcast series. Please stay tuned for part two, where Julian and I will talk about techniques on approaching and establishing relationships. In the meantime, for more information, please visit our website at www.ropesgray.com. And of course, if we can help you navigate any of the topics we discuss, please don't hesitate to get in touch with us. You can also subscribe to this series wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Thanks again for listening.